What does the Bible really say about sexual orientation? Spoken by Pastor Peter on. Good morning, Metro. I'm so grateful that you're here today. Um, and uh, we have a pretty heavy topic to talk about. And good morning to those who are watching online. Uh, several weeks ago, we launched a series that we felt was so integral for your own spirituality and my spirituality. It was a series called, What Does the Bible Really Say? And if truth be told, we live in a world and a society where they don't give much regard for the Bible. And we shouldn't expect them to, right? Because the truth is, why do we expect people who are not Christians to value what the Bible teaches us and that we think that maybe they should adhere to the ways of the biblical lifestyle? We should not expect that. But the danger of all of this these days, what's happening is that there are a lot of people in the church that struggle to believe that the Bible is actually the word of God. And that's the danger. If I were to ask you to raise your hand and ask how many of you believe that the Bible is truly the word of God, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but studies say that 50, only 50% of you would raise your hand. In fact, 35% of Christians read the Bible more than three times a week. All right? That's alarming. That means the majority of the Christians in this country don't read the Bible. And what happens is that when we're not reading the Bible, we tend to sort of distance ourselves from the Bible because God's not speaking to us about it. It's not informing us. And before you know it, there is this distance where that distance becomes almost similar to the distance that non-Christians have with the Bible. And that's the danger. That's the danger. And I know there's so many ways in how we can argue that the Bible is the word of God. And there's so many of you that can argue that the Bible is not the word of God. There are theologians who debate this all the time. And we can talk all about it till we're blue in the face about if the Bible is truly the word of God or not. But the reason why the Bible is the word of God and you and I must believe in it and submit to its authority is because Jesus Christ says it is the word of God. I'm gonna say that the reason why the Bible that you and I should adhere to the authority of the Bible and the scriptures is because Jesus Christ says it is. When you read the four gospels, Jesus quotes scripture all the time. He does. And Metro, if Jesus believes in the Bible, if you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, that he came and died for us on the cross and resurrected from the dead, and you believe and you submit to yourself to the authority of Jesus' lordship, then you need to realize that if the Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's gotta be good enough for you. If it's good enough for the Son of God, it's got to be good enough for us. And that's why the Bible is really important. And if we don't have that as a core foundation, how we're going to live our lives, then we will drift and start to assimilate ourselves more towards the world. Today I'm going to address a really important topic, and it's Sunita kind of alluded to it. We're going to ask the question, what does the Bible really say about being gay? This is not an easy topic to talk about. It's actually a very difficult topic to talk about. And, uh, you know, uh, some of you may not know this, but I actually tried to get somebody else to preach this topic. Not on our staff, because I didn't feel right about that. But I called our superintendent. I said, would you come and speak on this? And he said, no, I, I am too busy. I said, okay. And I remember, like, I just said, well, you know, like, I don't, I, you know, I just, I'm going to be very honest. I've never struggled with same-sex attraction. I didn't feel right in preaching this. And so I thought perhaps maybe um, I can ask the uh, pastor who is living into this and struggling with same-sex attraction. I remember I talked to Sunita about it during staff meeting. I'm like, hey, you think I should invite this person to come and preach? And Sunita, man, she can be like, she can be so hardcore. She looked at me, she goes, no, you're the senior pastor of the church. You need to preach this. I was like, man, okay. <laughs> Shoot, preach on this. 
But the reason why this is hard is because 91% of the gay communities say that the church is homophobic. And that's true. That's true. None of us can be proud of how the church has handled this topic and particularly the community of gay people. We have not only been homophobic, but we have been downright oppressive to the point where if you don't fully understand the depth of this, you gotta get to an opportunity to talk to folks in the gay community that many of them, because of what the church has done, have contemplated suicide. And that's downright awful. And so we have to first come to realize how we've been complicit in the injustice of how we've been homophobic. And I wanna encourage this, I'm gonna give you a time to repent today about it. But on behalf, if you are gay here today, if you are watching online or if you are gay here today, I just wanna say on behalf of the church, on behalf of all Christians, I ask that you would sincerely forgive us. You don't deserve to forgive us. We don't deserve your forgiveness. But I hope that if God were to so encourage you to, that you would forgive us of the horrible things that we have done to hurt you and to make you struggle in a way that is not really what's congruent and what Jesus teaches us in the Bible. Now, before I get started, I wanna to talk to you that I wanna acknowledge again that I've never struggled with same-sex attraction. So I don't know what that's like. I really don't. I certainly don't know what it's like for the church to tell you that what you're feeling and what you're experiencing about your sexuality is wrong. I don't know what that's like. If the church all of a sudden did a 180 and they came to me and said, you know what, your attraction towards your wife is wrong, I don't know how I would process that. That would be really difficult for me. And so I don't know this. So I come to you really sharing with you this message today, really not someone who really understands the depth or the struggles of what the Christian gay community are going through right now when they're trying to process this and trying to incorporate a healthy theological understanding into their own life in their lives. So I don't know what that's like, but I do have family members who are gay and bisexual and I've had deep and honest discussions with them. And I'm here to tell you that I love and I respect these people in my family and there's nothing I wouldn't do for them. And simply because I have learned over the years, and hopefully we can do this today, that I've learned to realize that there is so much more than their sexual orientation. Yes, it's a part of who they are, but it's not the totality of who they are, amen? Yeah, your sexuality, it does play a role in who you are. But what you and I need to realize, particularly if you're a Christian, your sexuality isn't the totality of who you are. And sometimes Christians, we think that. And then we're going to talk more about this in terms of like the gay community as well. All right. So I approach this topic with the utmost humility because being gay or struggling with same-sex attraction is never something I've ever wrestled with. It really is. But in the end, because I am a theologian and I'm a pastor here in this church, whether you're gay or whether you're straight, if you are a Christian and you want to live out and you say you believe in Jesus, we are called by God to live our lives in the way in which he's outlined for us in the Bible. God has designed a specific design and a pattern for us to live into in the Bible. It makes it very clear. And we are called, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, to live into that. And that's what I want to talk about today. We have to submit ourselves to do our best to live into it, no matter how far we fall short of that reality. All right, and so what we do actually does matter to God. And so I wanna talk about that. So before we get into this topic, would you just mind bowing your heads with me for a moment of prayer? God, I come to this with the utmost humility and God, I ask that you just guide me as I go through this and as we go through some text. But I just pray that we as a church, God, that you'll help us. Help us, Lord, to understand the throb of your heart. Help us to understand how you see life and how you've designed it and patterned it for us. 
And God, most of all, help us to submit to that the best we can because God, you are our king. We don't need to defend you. You're our king. And God, I pray that you'll help us to submit ourselves to you in that way. And so God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray God, it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. So what does the Bible really say about being gay? What does the Bible really say about being gay? When I use the word gay, what I mean by that is someone who is actively participating or have participated in same-sex relationships. This is more than you just being attracted to somebody in the, in the same sex, all right? This is you actually being involved sexually with someone. What does the Bible say about the behavior of homosexuality? See, the, 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 the tricky thing and the thing that's so difficult about this is that when the Bible talks about homosexuality, they're talking about a behavior. But when you talk to the people in the gay community, they don't see it just as a behavior because it's become their identity. And that is a dangerous place to be because we are so much more than just our sexual identity. We're so much more than that. Our sexual, whatever it is that we decide, our sexual orientation. We are so much more than that. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, our primary identity must be found in being a child of God. That is where it starts. All right, and so that is an important aspect to kind of cover and sort of uh, and, and share with you today about this. Our sexuality is important, but is not the core of who we are. Now, having established that, all right, the Bible makes it very clear that same-sex union is a sin. Same-sex union is a sin. We're going to look at some passages here in the Old Testament and New Testament. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22. Leviticus 18.22. Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Leviticus 20.13. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. Now, when Leviticus in 18 and 20, they talk about this, they're not just singling out uh, the sin of homosexuality. They're talking about all different types of sexual sins. They're talking about committing adultery on your neighbor's wife. They're talking about um, incest. They're talking about bestiality. They're talking about all those other types of sexual sins. So they're not just singling out this one sin. They're lumping it together in all different types. And there are so many different types of sexual sins, all right? Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 10. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or, or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, what he's talking about here is that these are people who are participating in a sinful practice and they are unwilling to ask God to forgive them. He says, those people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. These are people who are sinning and they refuse to repent. Listen, the heart of the gospel message is God's grace, amen? And what that teaches us is that we have all fallen and we're all sinful people, amen? And we are in dire need of God's grace. 
And so what Paul is saying here is Paul is saying that if we can acknowledge the fact that we are broken and sinful, and when we commit these acts and we don't ask God to forgive us, he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians, uh, first Timothy 1, 9 through 11. First Timothy 1, 9 through 11. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teachings that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Metro, there's no direct support in the Bible for sanctioning same-sex union. There are powerful texts that speak out clearly that sex with someone from the same sex, even though you may be in a committed relationship with that person, is a sin. But the main biblical narrative that we can refer to when we try to understand same-sex union is really uh, found in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. Let's just go there, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. All right, and we're going to look at Genesis 2 as well. Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused the man to fall fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined with his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. God created male and female so that they can become one, we learn in the Genesis account. And when you look at the Bible, you'll find that from the beginning to the end that God gave us the gift of sex so that it can be shared between a man and a woman within the institution of marriage. Within the institution of marriage. God created sex for the sole purpose of it being practiced in a marriage between a man and a woman. And because God created sex, Metro, he does care how you and I practice it. It's a gift in which he's given to us and he created a design and a pattern for that, and he wants us to practice it a certain way. God has every right to do that because it's a gift in which he's given to us. Jesus actually quotes scripture. He quotes the, the story in Genesis 2, 24. Uh, he says this in Matthew 19, four through six. Here's what Jesus says. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replies. See, Jesus, again, believes that the Old Testament is the word of God. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So from Genesis 1 and onward, the Bible repeatedly affirms that God made men and women for one another and that our sexual desires find its rightful fulfillment within heterosexual marriage. That is what the Bible teaches us. And so this picture of marriage really provides the backdrop or the foundation how you and I look at these Old Testament, New Testament passages that speak directly against same-sex union. And so I feel... A theological perspective on being gay thus does not rest alone on these biblical texts that speak against it. No, more importantly, on the foundational biblical text that we just read in Genesis that really set forth this human sexuality as an ordered ontology of personal and biological differentiation. 
That's what it's about. All right. Now, I know when you connect with people in the gay community, some of them will say that they had no choice. They were born this way, that they were born this way. And so that's why they're living into this way of being gay. And so, listen, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that they were born with it. In fact, there's actually quite a bit of science that supports that, that gay people are born that way. So I don't doubt that for a minute. But let me just try to break this down theologically and how we are to see this. When we were created by God, all right, when we were created, God created us, all right, with his character or his godliness, right, his, sin, his way of life, his nature. But God, but there was, because we live in a broken, sinful world, we were also created with a sinful nature. So there is a godly nature that you and I were created with, and that's the stuff that God has given to us. The Bible says that when we come to know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then activates this godly nature in a way that probably wouldn't have been, been activated prior to it. The, the, the nature of loving people, uh, the nature of forgiving those who we struggle to forgive, the nature of being merciful and gracious and compassionate and, just, and being justice-minded. Those are godly nature. Okay, but what the Bible also makes very clear is that we were also born with a sinful nature, all right? Because we were born in this broken world, you and I are born with a sinful nature. We know what that's like. All of us, we have a sinful nature. I was born with the sinful nature of anger. It comes from my family. In fact, some Koreans say your last name, An, a lot of Ans are angry, people. I was born with a very angry nature. It's just within me. I was born with a nature to commit adultery on my wife, Jenny. I was born with that. I really was. And so there are these sinful natures. Some of you are born with a sinful nature of not wanting to forgive someone. When the Bible makes it clear that that's part of the Christian tenets. That's one of the Christian tenets of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? And so we were born with a sinful nature. And when somebody says, somebody who is gay says they were born gay, we have to realize that under the context of sinful nature. Yes, they were born gay, but it was from their sinful nature is where it came from. That's the backdrop and that's the foundation and how we have to see that. All right? We cannot say, therefore, then that the practice of homosexuality or homosexual behavior is acceptable to God because they were born with. That's like, I cannot say that I'm gonna commit adultery on my wife because I was born with this desire to commit adultery on her. That's an important thing to establish. The question really is then, how do we as Christians then respond to the gay community? How do we as Christians respond to the gay community. We have been so wrong, even though we have this theological understanding and God makes it very clear about how we approach life, how we approach our sexuality, we still have to respond to the gay community in the right way because the Christian community hasn't done a very good job on this. Many years ago, when I was a, when I was a freshman in college, I joined this Christian group and it was this tiny little group of about eight people. And one of the things that the pastor really encouraged us to do was to really invite folks on campus to our Thursday night fellowship meetings. And so I would really focused really hard on that. And you know, all of us, we would invite as many people as we possibly could. And I think I was a sophomore at the time. And, uh, and I invited my RA. My RA was gay and uh, I knew he was. Uh, and when I invited him, he was a little shocked. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, are you sure I can attend your fellowship? He said, because I'm gay. And at that time I was a little bit naive, I guess. I said, of course you can come and be a part of our fellowship. We'd love to have you. And so he came for about three weeks, three Thursdays, and then he stopped for a while. And then I went to him and I said, hey, hey, how come you're not coming out anymore? And he said, well, you know, um, I got together with your campus pastor and he actually told me that I'm not allowed to come out to your group anymore because I'm gay. 
and he looked so sad and dejected. And I felt horrible for him. And I just said, would you please forgive us for that? And I actually felt really bad for inviting him because the pain that he felt from that kind of rejection was downright awful. We have not done a good job in loving the gay community. And so how do we respond? How do we respond as Christians to the gay community? First, we must see the gay community as people created in the image of God. You get that? You see them as people created in the image of God. Look at Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Listen, God created human beings in his image. That means everyone is created in his image. And when we approach the gay community, that is the first thing we must see within them. They are image bearers of God. Can I get an amen to that? God made all human beings image bearers of him. And so when we approach the gay community, we must approach them with this deep understanding they are people who were created in the image of God. And I think that's so hard. I don't know why that's so difficult for Christians to embrace. But we can't embrace it for many of us. But they are image bearers of God. And if we do anything to hurt them in a, in a way in which doesn't reflect them being created in the image of God, then God be with us. God be with us on that one. Because that's going to be tough. All right? And so are, are gay people welcomed here at Metro Community Church? Absolutely. They are. The gay community is welcomed here in this church. They're welcome to be a part of this church. Why? Because they are image bearers of God. And because they're image bearers of God, no one, no human being should ever be discriminated upon when it comes to encountering the presence of God. No one. We don't have a right. I don't have a right. If you're a leader in this church, you don't have a right to tell someone to say, you cannot encounter God's presence. Because we've been created in the image of God, we all can encounter the presence of God. And so no Christian leader or no pastor has any right to tell somebody who is gay to say, you cannot come and be a part of our church and our community. That is wrong because we're all image bearers of Jesus Christ. However, however, if you are gay and you are a practicing gay person and you are unwilling to live out according to the biblical values that God has outlined for us here and you don't want to change and you won't change, you can still come and be a part of the life of our church, but we will not let you serve in certain positions in our church. We will not allow you to serve in certain positions in our church, positions that require you to teach the Bible to other people in our church. Okay, we will tell you not to. You cannot serve in those positions because if you are unwilling to live out the patterns that God has outlined for us in the Bible, we don't want you to teach that pattern to other people. All right? It's the same way if we've done this in the past within our church. We've told people to step down when we found that a couple is struggling and, and somebody is uh, committing adultery on their spouse. And if there are leaders in our church, we've told them to step down from leadership. Because again, if they're not willing to live out the pattern that God's outlined for them, they need to step away from it, all right? We've, we've, we've also talked to folks in our singles community. We've decided then to just move in and live together. That's a very natural practice today. Many single people and even Christian people move in and they live together. If they are serving in certain leadership positions in the church, we will tell them to step down from that ministry because they are not willing to live out what the Bible teaches about marriage and things like that. So we do that. In fact, our partners, in order to become a partner or a member of this church, if you are unwilling 
to reconcile or at least seek the process of reconciliation with somebody that you might have hurt or if they've hurt you, if you are unwilling to do that, we tell you to step down from partnership. Because again, we don't want you to be a partner in this church if you are creating division in our church. So listen, you may not agree with our position on that, but we ask and we expect you to at least respect it. Our leadership here in this church, we are doing our very best to appear and submit ourselves to the authority of scripture. We're doing our very best to do that. And we wanna make sure Metro is a place where everyone could be welcomed, everyone can encounter the presence of God. But when it comes to leadership or serving in certain positions in the church, we have to, Paul encourages us in, in his letters that we have to be willing to look and make sure that people are trying their best to submit themselves to the authority of God's word and living according to that pattern, to the best of their abilities. If they fall, they must repent, they must ask God to forgive them. But if they're doing that, yeah, they can serve in leadership. But if they're unwilling to and they're not willing to live that out for their lives, then they shouldn't be serving in certain positions in the church. We don't ask, we don't expect all of you to agree with us on that, but we do ask that you would respect it. We do ask that you would respect it. All right, now for some, I do have to cover this because uh, over the years, when, uh, years ago when the Supreme Court finally allowed um, the gay community to get married, right, uh, it caused sort of an upheaval in the church. I actually had to come up here and share my thoughts on that uh, one Sunday. And I just heard from some of our staff members on Tuesday that some of you, I think you might have misinterpreted some of the things that I said because you say, well, Pastor Peter is for gay marriages, okay? You've heard, uh, you've heard me say something to that effect, but I, I think perhaps you've forgotten some of the other things that I've shared. So I, I think I need to make this very clear, okay? Uh, I want you to know that when I look at marriages, I see two types of marriages. The first type of marriage that I see is secular marriage. All right, that is a marriage without God. That is something that's happening all the time around us. The other type of marriage that I see is Christian marriage, all right? I am all for the gay community getting married at a secular level. I am all for gay secular marriages, 100%, because I believe the gay community needs rights that married couples get in this country. They do. If their partner is sick, I believe that they should be allowed to stay at the hospital overnight because that's their family. That's their partner. I believe that. I believe if God forbid they pass away that they deserve the rights as a spouse that a spouse will get in a married relationship. I believe the gay community needs rights. So I am all for secular gay marriage. I am not for Christian gay marriage because the Bible does not embrace that. And so I am not for Christian gay marriage, but I am for secular gay marriage. And I know sometimes Christians, we get so caught up on the word marriage, especially when it's attached to the gay community. But can I just convict some of you? Because you don't care about other groups or other types of people getting married that are not Christians. Do you know that people get married and they have open relationships? Meaning they have other people that they're involved in sexually? Like, do you get hung up about that when they get married? You don't. Do you know there's other types of faiths particularly the Mormon faith in Utah, where polygamy is okay, where they can get married, where a man can get married to multiple women at the same time, and it's now legal in that state. Do you get hung up about that? Why do you get so hung up about marriage for gay people in a secular setting? We should support that. Because that's a justice issue at the end. We have to learn as a church, as Christians, when we see a gay person, we have to see them first as image bearers of God. 
that's the place where we start. Because if you talk to anyone who's in the gay community, they will say the church is anything but that. They don't see us as image bearers of God. They just see us as wretched sinners. And that's heartbreaking. So uh, when I got out of college, I worked for four years in television. I worked for NBC News. And when you work in the television industry, there is a very high percentage of gay people in, that, in, in the industry. And uh, in my department, there were a few gay, gay folks that I worked with. And I got close to uh, the, the audio engineer in particular. And we would just hang out. And, you know, as, as producer, before you produce something, sometimes you got to wait for music. You got to wait for this, you know, the voiceover guy to come. And so I just would sit in his edit room. And we would just talk. And he knew I was a Christian. And we started talking about different places where we've traveled to and maybe some places we want to travel to. And I don't know, for some reason, I just said to him, I was like, hey, have you visited Texas ever? And he looked at me in horror and he goes, I would never visit Texas. And I said, why? He said, because of how they treat the gay community. He said, Peter, if I owned a nuclear bomb, I would drop it in the state of Texas. <laughs> he was serious. Why? Because Texas is a part of the Bible Belt. And when you look at the history in this country of how people, Christians in the Bible Belt, and even here, I mean, have treated the gay community, it is just downright sinful. Why? Because the Christian community, we do not see the gay community as image bearers of God. That's the first place we start. The gay community bear the very image of God, and we need to see them as such. Amen? Second and last thing in how we can respond to the gay community as Christians is you need to learn to love and befriend the gay community. Now listen, I, I think one of the most abusive things that we've done as Christians over the years is we use the word love so loosely. We say, I love you. But how many times have we truly hurt people because we've said that? Because our actions reflect anything but that. Look what 1 John 3, 14 and 17 teaches us. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know that the real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can, the, how can God's love be in that person. This passage teaches us that we live in the greatest reality of our faith in Jesus Christ, not through our beliefs, but it's through our actions. That if you really want to, if you really want to ask yourself, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? It's more than just your theology or your understanding of it. John says it's your capacity to love, particularly love people that are so different from you that you typically don't want to love. All right? That's the Christian faith. So many of you prescribe to the Christian faith as like an insurance policy. Uh, some of us, we think that the Christian faith is really about us uh, believing in God so that he can protect us so that no harm comes to our lives. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but a lot of you believe that. If I ask you why you're a Christian, you say, well, because so I can go to heaven, insurance policy when I die, and so that he can help me and protect me so that I don't get hurt or so that I'm living in a very safe and comfortable way here in America. Guys, that's not God. That's the American dream you're after. The American dream is about comfort. It's about success. It's about doing well. That's the American dream. That's not God's dream for you. You know what God's dream for you is? For you to pick up your cross and follow him. What does picking up the cross mean? You're going to have to suffer. God wants to invade your world, and he wants you to love people that you typically don't want to love. 
Why? Because if you can do that, God, the, God, please don't misunderstand God and John here. God doesn't want you to do that to make your lives miserable. That's not what God's after. He's not about destroying the quality of your life. It's the opposite. Because when you can learn to love people that you're not comfortable loving, you know what begins to happen? You see the beautiful textures and colors of the Christian faith. You begin to see the beautiful tapestry of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You learn a little bit of what God is like because he loves you and I unconditionally in spite of what we do and what we don't do. Amen? That's why God wants us to do this. Why is it so hard for us to get? And the hard part of this, why is it so difficult for us to tell somebody that when we love them, that we actually mean it through our actions? Because so many of us, we don't. We like to use the L-O-V-E word, but it only... We only, we only will love somebody up until a certain point. John says, you should, you should be willing to die for that person. That's what it means. He says, if, if somebody is truly in need and you have the needs to help them, he says, how can, and you don't, how can the love of God be in you? I want to encourage you. If you say the love of God is in you and you have not loved and learned to love and support the gay community, how can you say the love of God is in you? How could you say you've actually done a good job of loving your neighbor as yourself when they are image bearers of God? How can you do that? You've heard the saying many times, uh, Christians say, hate the sin, but love the sinner. A lot of times people say that, right? I'm here to, from my experience, that's wrong. Because if you hate the sin, you will hate the sinner. It always happens that way. I would say acknowledge the sin, but always choose to love the sinner. Because at the end of the day, you and I all have sin. I acknowledge your sin. I hope you acknowledge my sin. You better acknowledge my sin because I'm not perfect. But love the sinner. Please love me in the midst of my sins. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to do it. And so let me just encourage you right now, if you're a Christian today, do you have any friendships with people in the gay community? Do you know anyone within that? If you don't, why not? Can I just ask you, what's going on inside of you? Why not? Now listen, when I say that, I, I, sometimes Christians can be really weird. Like you can go around, you're like, okay, well, I got to find a gay friend now, so I'm going to start asking people, are you gay, are you gay? You don't do that. <laughs> because then that becomes more about you than about the other person. That's not healthy. And that's actually very selfish. It's very self-centered, right? But I guarantee you, some of you, a lot of you have family members that are gay. I guarantee you, many of you are working with people who are gay. I guarantee you that some of you are playing basketball and basketball leagues with, and with some people that might be gay. I guarantee you that's within, kind of what you're, where you're at in your social circles. Why? Why are you not befriending and connecting with them? What is going on deep side in you? What has maybe the church done? What has your upbringing or your culture done to inform you in such a way that you should not befriend and learn to love? The gay community, because as Christians, you better dare not say you're against something or something is wrong unless you can first love that person. All right? You know, I used to have these friends I grew up with uh, when I just graduated college, and they just said, well, I, I'm just afraid to, to befriend the gay community because what happens if that guy falls in love with me? Give me a break. <laughs> like, you're giving yourself way too much credit here right now. You think a gay person is not going to be able to control himself and fall in love with you? Give me a break. What's going on in you? Because you know what the messed up thing about that is? You'll say stuff like that, but you'll give no regard to being attracted to a married woman. 
and befriending them at work, taking them out for lunch and thinking about committing an affair. You'll give no regard to that, but yet you say somehow you're afraid to befriend somebody who's gay because you're afraid that they might like you? What's going on in you that's causing you to separate and distance yourself from somebody who's been created in the image of God? What's going on inside of you that's causing you to do this? You gotta ask yourself that. And do you ever stop once for a moment and realize how hard it is for a gay person to befriend you? You think it's easy for a gay person to befriend somebody who's a Christian with all the negative history that's been there between Christians and the gay community? You think it's easy? It's not. It's difficult. It's challenging. And so what is it? If you really want to live your life and be truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you got to learn to befriend and love the gay community. But here's the thing about love. You can't love somebody unless you accept them first. You just can't. And that's why, that's why we have hurt so many people over the years because we say, I love you, but you don't accept them. You ever think about in the Bible why the greatest sinners of Jesus' day were so attracted to him? And why were they so repulsed by the spiritual leaders, like the Pharisees and Sadducees? Why? And the high priest. One thing, Jesus accepted them and loved them, but the religious leaders didn't. I think so many times we're so much more like religious leaders than we are Jesus. You can't love someone unless you first accept them. I saw that firsthand with my sister Susan, who grew up with a learning disability. She would go to church and you know, she would try to make friends. In the Korean culture, if you have a learning disability, you're invisible to your own people because we find so much of identity in our intellectuality. And so she would go and try to befriend some of the girls there and they would sit down. They'd be cordial for just a few moments, but then they would stand, they would leave. They would never go back. And so my, and my sister Susan, what she would do, she would get the phone numbers of the sisters in the youth group. She would call them and they would say, oh, Susan, I'm really busy, I'll call you back. I can't, I can't talk right now. They never called her. So my sister's community in church, she only attended for a little while, was the children. Because children accepted her for no matter what. That's why Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like a little child. Why? Because they accept you. They love you. They don't accept you based upon what you do, what you don't do. They just love on you. Now, kids are not like perfect, but they at least know how to do that. And we don't know how to do that. My family member who's gay, we've had some deep talks and, 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 and we've shared and and when they came out and they shared it with me, they know that I'm a pastor. And they said, is this going to hinder our relationship? Uncle Peter, is this going to really hurt us? And I've shared kind of what I'm sharing with you right now. But I said, but no matter what, I will always be here for you. And I may not agree with how you're living, but I will always respect and accept and love you. Whatever you need, I am here. And I have been extending myself to my family members who are, who are gay and bisexual and they have slept in my home, we have connected, we have done things, we've talked on the phone. I can't just say, I love you and I'll accept you and then I don't take their phone call, I won't let them stay at my house, I won't connect with them. It's just, you can't do that. You can't say you love somebody and then you don't accept them. And so maybe one of the greatest things you can begin to do today is begin to learn to accept the gay community because you see them as image bearers of God. And I would say this, I'm going to go as far as says, we need the Christian gay community because they're part of the church. We need them. We cannot do life and church outside of them. 
We do need that. We need to be in constant dialogue and we need to grow because that's important because they share the same faith that we share. They believe in the same Jesus that died for them on the cross and resurrected from the dead. Now, there might be different things in terms of practice that we differ on, but we still need them because at the end of the day, they're image bearers of God. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I love what he says here. And I end with this. He says, nothing that we despise in other men is entirely absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or don't do and more in light of what they suffer. I'm going to read that again. Nothing that we despise in other men is entirely absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or don't do and more in light of what they suffer. Back in September 11th, it was a hard time. If I were to ask you, where were you on 9-11? All of you would be able to tell me exactly what you were doing, exactly when you heard what happened in, those, in, in the towers, right? You would know that. I was in seminary. I was sleeping because three hours back, and one of my friends in seminary called me and said, you got to wake up and turn on the TV because something terrible has happened. I remember that. It was a hard time for all of us. It was a real hard time, particularly, you may not even know this, but for Muslim Americans. They suffered not only racism, but some of them, their health was in jeopardy, oppression in deep ways in this country because of all that happened in 9-11. And my professor, one of my former professors, professor of New Testament, fortunately he passed away many years ago, uh, Dr. David Scholler, he wrote an article in the LA Times really challenging the Christian community particularly, not just anyone, but particularly the Christian community. And the article is summed up like this. He says something to the effect of, he says, don't ever say that you are against something until you can first befriend and love that person. He says, you and I have no right to do that as Christians. And you know, I, I was trying to find the article this week on Google, and I'm not very good at that kind of thing. And so I couldn't find it, but I shared this in the first service, and somebody found it for me. They said, I said, how'd you find it? They said, Google. I'm like, I looked all over for it this week. I couldn't find it, but they found it like that. So I can actually give you the quote, because he ends the article. It was so powerful that it made such a deep impact in my life. Here's what he said, and I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't have it up on the screen, but I'll read it for you. He says this, people who think they have all the answers to all of life's questions are fake. You have no right to oppose women in ministry until you have made a friend who is called to ministry and you've listened to her story. He says, you have no right to make a statement about homosexuality until you have made friends with a Christian homosexual person. He says, the conclusion you draw is a whole nother issue. I love that quote. Basically what he's saying is don't you ever say you are against something until you can say you've first fallen in love and you've befriended that person. The conclusion you draw is completely separate from the mandate that God calls you and I to do. John says, how could you say the love of God is in you when you see people who are hurting and potentially even in need? We are so much more than our sexuality. We should never find our primary identity in our sexuality. Our primary identity, if we're a follower of Jesus, must be found in being a child of God. And as Christians, if you say you love Jesus Christ, when you connect with people who are gay or people in the gay community in this church, you see them first as image bearers of God. And you know that there is a mandate that God encourages you and I to do, to love and befriend, to accept, and to love and care and serve the gay community the best we can. And hopefully they can serve us as well. We need each other. We're better together. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer.
I'm going to give you a time right now. Um, listen, if, if you have no friends right now who are gay, I'm going to ask you right now, and I'm going to ask you the question, why? Perhaps maybe deep down, if you look under the surface of what's going on in your soul, it could be because, it could be because the church has really taught homophobia. If that's you, you need to ask God to forgive you today. I want to give us an opportunity to repent. All right? And um, I want us as a church, if we can't come together, I just want you to pray for this church. We're heading into some really hard times in where we are in the world. And we have to continue to try to be faithful to the Bible and what God teaches us. But at the same time, we have to do our best to understand the culture in which you and I are called to live. It's not easy. It's challenging. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for our church that the enemy would not divide us, but that the Holy Spirit would always unite us? And that regardless of our disagreements, that we can still learn to love and respect one another because that's what God will call us and desires all of us to do. So let's just go to God and ask God to just come. If you need to repent, repent. But can you pray for this church for just a moment and then I'll just lead us in prayer. I don't know why I'm sensing this, but um, I think there are some of you here and maybe you've really been struggling a lot with same-sex attraction. And maybe for some of you, it's been a, a secretive world. Nobody knows. Because you're so afraid of the repercussions of what might happen if you do tell your family, maybe your church, your friends. And so you've lived with this deep sense of shame for a long time. I want you to know God's here. And he wants to minister to you today. He really does. Hope you allow him to, whether it's through singing the songs, whether it's maybe going in the back, allowing one of our pastors or our, our elders to pray for you. But don't ever be alone. And don't ever believe that your shame is so great that nobody can know about it. I hope that you can be vulnerable and share. And know that here at Metro, this is a safe place for you to share. So let God and the Holy Spirit just minister to you. And so God, I pray for those people that might be struggling and it's been something that they've struggled for a long time. God, I just pray that you would envelop them with your presence. You'd give them courage and boldness, not to hide it, not to pretend it doesn't exist but God, that they would allow themselves to let the full light of Jesus Christ to shine in those areas. And I pray you'd convince them that they can't, yeah, it can't happen unless they're honest and vulnerable about it. And so God, I pray that if they end up having the courage to share that within people in this church or our staff, oh God, I pray that it would be such a, a monster step forward and for them to living into the true identity of being a child of God. And so I pray you'd just be with them. 
be with us as a church. I pray you forgive us. And for anyone here who's really struggled with homophobia, forgive us. And I pray that we would really see the gay community as image bearers of God. And that you would forgive us that we have not, that sometimes we see them more upon their behavior as opposed to who they are, that you've created them in your image. And through that, would you give us the ability, just naturally, God, would you bring people of all walks of life into our life and may we be able to see the beautiful tapestry of what the faith of God is really like and understand what unconditional love is truly like a little bit, that we'll get a glimpse of it. And so God, help us as we continue to move forward, be with our church and guide us through these times. As we continue to tackle difficult topics and subject matters like this, I pray that you'll just guide us. It's in your name that we pray, amen.